there's no distinction because they don't yeah, have I an know. abstract conceptual language. For the sake yeah. of using normal English in the introduction, <laughs> in the China Maple podcast. We're doing China Maple, but we have to make up at least <laughs> one word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Snap. In his 2011 novel, Embassy Town, China Mieville describes the first meeting between the enigmatic hosts and humans. He says, The hosts did not learn our Anglo-Ubic, did not seem to try, but within a few thousand hours, terra-linguists could understand much of what the hosts said and synthesise responses and questions in the one Ariakene language. The phonetic structure of the sentences they had their machines speak, the tonal shifts, the vowels and the rhythm of consonants were precise, accurate to the very limits of testing. The hosts listened and did not understand a single sound. In following the book's protagonist, Avis, we encounter a world in which the resident species is only able to speak the truth and come to encounter abstraction and concepts acted out by human beings in order to talk about new things. This process, however, turns the society and the ecosystem of the planet upside down. I'm Alex Hoseason, and joining me today are... Philip Conway. Uh, Katarina Huna. And Matthew Campbell. Okay, so we've finally got round to doing one of Kat's favourite books. She's gone red now. Um, <laughs> for our listeners. Um, what is it that you like so much about this, Kat? I mean, it's, it's quite related to your work and stuff, right? Uh, I guess so. I mean, thanks for, for providing this context, Alex. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's a good question, but also it's a mean question, so I, I kind of, I'm going to keep it short. I think it's an absolutely great book, it's well written, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, I think it's, I mean, sci-fi deals with language a lot, it has to, because it's about the encounter between uh, humans and other species. But I think, for me, this is the book that does it best, in the sense of, the book is philosophy of language, wrapped up in science fiction and for that it's absolutely perfect. So you're pretty much the target audience right? I mean at that point. Yeah I'm pretty much a target audience because in my uh, PhD work I talk a lot about metaphors, um, about thinking of states as persons and all kinds of crazy stuff so but I think it's not just people like me who are the target audience right? I mean I think I think generally he he doesn't do it in an, in a kind of in a kind of obvious way. He doesn't he doesn't start out with like oh by the way so I know about philosophy of language and here is the kind of science fiction book to go with your favorite philosopher. Um, he does it very subtly, but if you know where to look, you can find a lot, and it's kind of enjoyable in a geeky way because you find all these references in places, and yeah, it's great for everyone. Yeah, really. I think it is quite a strange thing because I mean, China Mievels quite a well-known activist as well as a writer and broadcaster and all the rest of it and I think for everyone that agrees with his quite radical leftist politics there's not enough class war in his books and for the people that don't agree with that stuff they find it way too over the top I mean when we interviewed Patrick Jackson he said that you know that was what frustrated him about reading Mievel's stuff um, but I mean I, I, I think I'm in a similar demographic to you. I mean, you know, I, I, I read this stuff and, and I do get a lot out of it. I think there's quite a lot there to mine through in terms of, particularly if you're, if you're looking for those kind of more dense philosophical ideas, because particularly with, for instance, the language of the hosts, when they're convincing themselves to lie or, you know, this kind of thing, we see that kind of quite 
complex logical structure to the way that they have to trick themselves. Right? And what did you think, Matt? I mean, this first, is this the first time you've read this, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I was slightly forewarned going in that uh, China Melville could be quite dense to get through. And it was very readable, but there were certain ideas I guess I wanted to see explored more. And they weren't because, well, as sci-fis want to do, that they're, they're structures to get us further down the road. So there's the example that the Ariakim can only understand speech that's actually spoken by sentient creatures. Even if you record, record it and then play it back to them later, they can understand it. But sound created by a machine, they can't. But that's not how sound waves work. And the book doesn't really dig into that. Even though it's conversations later about what we mean by consciousness or what we mean by understanding that these humans are living creatures and they can communicate with the aliens are very interesting. There are still things that are sort of hand-waved away to get further down the exploration track. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I would say that there's actually quite a lot of left leftist politics in this book. No, absolutely. There, are of, like, there is actually a lot of discussions of class you can tease out. Yeah. Both yeah. you have the humans and the aliens structure their world. Hmm. Well, in, in terms of continuing those explorations that you found lacking in the book, um, I mean, should we start with the host, right? I mean, they're, they're obviously the key point around which a lot of yeah. this book kind of kind of rotates, right? Phil, are these in your top five of alien species? <laughs> I've got, I don't think I have such a list, but... Um, I'm going to hide yeah. mine. It's interesting, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I re-read, the, re-read this book recently, obviously for this podcast, but I did read it I guess about 18 months, two years ago, and I think, as I was, I was saying to you, Alex, um, uh, it's interesting how you kind of build up a picture of what these things actually look like as you go through the book and actually the first time I read it I think I changed my mind after about 100 pages as to what they actually look like quite radically um, which is why I found it in many ways more enjoyable the second time around when I already had a picture of this world in my head and I could just sort of jump straight into it and not um, uh, the first time I felt as though I was maybe getting a little bit lost in trying to tease out a uh, exactly how things were supposed to fit together. Yeah, it's quite strange because, I mean, if you read the Lord of the Rings books now, right, it's quite hard not to see <laughs> Strider or Aragorn as Viggo Mortensen, right? Or even as every other character that copied that idea that came after, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I think I ended up with some kind of insect legs. Anyone else get insect legs? No? Cat got insect legs. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I think I think it's really hard to imagine, but I had a similar thing to Phil, where the first time around, I mean, the first time around, I was too keen on the idea, so I didn't actually like pay a lot of attention to how to imagine the hosts. Um, but I think I think this is a good starting point for one of the key things of their kind of physiology that also plays into the into into aspects of language, into aspects of communication and misunderstanding. So one of the key things, apart from all the other fancy stuff like different kinds of wings and whatever, the key thing I think to, to pick up is, um, so the hosts, the native uh, species of the planet, they have two mouths. Um, and so they use both while they're speaking and they say, they kind of emit like sounds or even words we don't know through both mouths at the same time. and so they speak to both at the same time, which causes exactly those kind of complications that Matt was referring to, right? And this is basically, it's a unique thing in in that kind of universe, and a thing that massively complicated the communication on the planet when the first, like, let's call them settlers, arrived. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly the distinguishing feature. So the idea is that they make different sounds out of both of their mouths simultaneously. And those two things put together and only together are what's distinguishable as language. I mean, language is used with a capital L in the book yeah. to illustrate the fact that it is a very, very specific thing. Um, and, and you end up with this kind of weird situation where they only recognise humans who are, or they only talk to, they'll respond to other humans, but they only talk to humans that are able to simultaneously perform that. So you have this quite interesting idea, actually, between, they refer to two people as one person, they are the same person. Um, and it, if those people are on their own, they're diminished, they're cleft or whatever it's is it you clap the term yeah um so you end up with this interesting thing where actually the areakai which is what i'm calling them um <laughs> only recognize these ambassadors who are two people i'm not sure how so i mean this is partly a function of it being the word on the page but even when we only have one sound producing thing like a mouth our language is still built up of other things, tone and speed, matter to meaning in English. So I'm not sure how the construction of, well, okay, we're adding in two sounds, but language is made up of lots of ideas anyway. Hmm. So there must be something deeper with how the hosts don't get that human noises are could be language. Yeah, I mean, it is quite strange because also, normally you would say that it's something to do with the intention, right? You, you, you didn't recognise someone's meaning because their tone was all the way off and it didn't convey their intention properly or, or whatever. Now, I mean, presumably, when the first people went to talk to the, went to talk to the Ariakin, as we heard in the beginning quote, they very, very much intended <laughs> to talk to them. Um, and the ambassadors are the same. It, it's, a, it's a little bit of an ambiguity in the book that he doesn't fully explain. Uh, well, the, the capital L language in, implies a kind of, well, a singularity for, from the, the hosts, I'm going to say hosts, <laughs> point of view. There is only one possible language, language, yeah. mm. um, and that precludes any possibility of translation or thinking from another kind of perspective. So there's, uh, and, the, and the, the course of the book in many ways, this, this, uh, sort of self-containment breaking down in many ways and then they come out the other end a completely kind of transformed entity. Mm. It's very interesting because you say precludes uh, translation but obviously the humans, the settlers, mm. they can translate and they begin to understand and they can make sense of language with a capital L. Um, but that's very interesting because it kind of hints at the fact that we should think of the Ariakai almost as maybe um, what's a good word, as somehow not complete, as somehow lacking something, because they can't understand another conceptual system. But the settlers, the humans, somehow can imagine, can relate. What they lack is freedom, in a sense, because they don't have falsehood. You can't, and it's a suggestion, I think, in terms of the philosophy mm -hmm. of language, that you can't have freedom without the ability to lie. Well, it's interesting because, while it's very clearly framed as what they're missing is lying and metaphor, some of the humans think this is a dreadful constraint that the aliens have and that really we should help them to lie. Whereas other humans and some of the hosts, the word they use is heresy, that we are somehow corrupting or polluting these aliens. The obvious metaphor here is the fall, that we should keep their purity of not being able to lie. 
which is framed very deliberately as it's a human standard that this wonderful sinless state that the hosts are currently in is something to be preserved well, also, also that it doesn't change right yeah I mean the thing about the Arika language is that it reflects the state of things right if things exist they can speak it right this is why they need the humans to act things out um, now I mean there seems to be a kind of thing in the book at least implied whether intentionally or not that actually humans became much better to understand uh, much better at understanding the Arikai once they lived there once they occupied the same space and experienced the world through different eyes but in some way similar to the way the Arikai do or did um, I mean the funny thing about that kind of argument about linguistic purity which is quite a big theme through the book so there's effectively a cult set up about the protection uh, that concerns the protection of the Arikai's linguistic heritage and all the rest of it I mean actually that to me is a condemnation of academia because it's set up by a linguist right it's set up by someone who wants to protect who having studied the Arikai language wants to protect it clearly has an interest in doing so I mean not necessarily instrumental but he's, he's quite bound to this way of things being right? he's fascinated by it so it's quite a patronizing external thing I mean presumably if the city in some way changes and it, it clearly does change because all their buildings are organic um, presumably if the city changes then the language of the Uriakai changes to reflect that and it just so happens that the biggest change the dramatic change that has happened to them is the arrival of this species which frankly they don't really know what to make much what to make of yeah, I, th I think that kind of brings us to the uh, this almost Victorian undertones of uh, the book in many ways because that was a big theme of turn of the 20th century anthropology in terms of preserving uh, native cultures that were seen to be disappearing because of particularly in the United States the expansion of the, the frontier to basically mm -hmm. take over the entire continent um, and there are, there are many ways in which that, that sort of era of thinking of somehow being uh, a kind of puritanical need to preserve uh, uh, these, well, what by the end of the book are our species kind of at the mercy of human beings need to need to preserve them in the natural state. They are noble savages. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, I mean, I have a question on that, right? I get the idea that there is no pure state and there is no natural state, so things are constantly changing, right? But I do get a sense that it's also about minimizing the impact that embassy town, so this kind of settler colony has on the hosts about like we don't have a right to change the society so fundamentally i mean obviously every kind of thing that happens is going to change language and should change language that's how it works right that's what alex was saying when he said oh, it's funny that he's a linguist and tries to preserve the purity of language but at the same time there is a moral argument to be made to say we should try and maybe minimize our impact or maybe prevent a negative impact to occur yeah, I think there's an aspect of that, but there's some really interesting, just to follow up on what Phil was saying about the kind of Victorian overtones of this, I mean, understanding societies as organic entities has naturally been quite a strong justification for conservatism, right? Um, so there, there is an interesting line of thinking there. I mean, just to kind of 
you, you end up with this quite interesting juxtaposition where she refers to just about everything that is kind of human-made, terra-made, as terra-tech, right? It's a very mechanical, computerized understanding. You know, she uploads languages to her head and things like that. You get, you get this quite nice inversion, actually. It's one of my favorite in the book where she refers to rivers as small canals, right? Which obviously canals being by definition a human-made thing quite nicely demonstrates the, the kind of opposition that is going on there. So I can see what you're saying, Kat. I mean, obviously there is some element of responsibility involved, um, but in some regards that responsibility is also a patronizing position to take, right? In the sense that it's clear that the Ariakin can and do interact with organisms other than themselves. Right in their ecosystems, presumably, you know they they have live farms and all the rest of it. So it seems like quite a strange line to take. To I mean, Mievel's a nuanced enough author and thinker to. It seems like there should be more going on there. I think the clearest point where the human interjection into their society and indeed our infect our their infection of the whole society is clearest is that we destroy their ecology. That whatever you think of the societal structure of one that has metaphor and lying, it is the arrival of humans that turns their ecosystem haywire. Mm. Now, it's not the lies that do this. It's a broken ambassador that the imperialistic human empire has sent in there. But our, the, the effect of the human species on the planet is clearly a negative one overall. Yeah, well, it's not the arrival of the humans, though, is it? Because this has happened quite a long time, well, we don't know, decades after humans have settled there. And it's kind of intrinsic to the plot, actually, at the start of the book. Um, the, this, almost, this, this whole problem doesn't really come into it because the human beings are there at the grace of the hosts. That's why they're called the hosts. And they're actually, well, the hosts are described uh, as being like gods, essentially, because they have such total mastery of the world on which they live that the idea that humans could somehow even affect that or begin to understand it, never mind, you know, turn it on its head, would have been completely absurd. And a large part of, um, of, the, the, sort of the, how we get to understand the mindset of the humans living here is, is involved with uh, the almost incomprehensibility of anything, any such change happening. And it's, it's, kind of, it's almost an accident. Uh, and, and, uh, or uh, at least um, an, an, an unforeseen or unforeseeable, as far as we know, event that actually transforms that. And it's because of this of intrinsic connectedness uh, of, the, of the planet of which these uh, hosts are a part that um, there's kind of a, that tipping point is able to completely transform the whole thing, which again is a, is a, is a plot point as much as it is a kind of ontological point. The problem created isn't unforeseen, though. The the embassy towners, as we'll call them, know that the the plot point that causes the problem is that there's an ambassador who doesn't quite speak properly, and this problem is addictive to the hosts. Mm. And the embassy towners know that this is possible. They have the secret asylum full of failed ambassadors who they don't let speak to the hosts because of what it could do. And it becomes a problem when an external host, an ambassador who has this problem appears. So it's not as if this problem is unforeseen. The embassy tanners are acutely aware of how damaging their presence could be to the hosts, and they don't do much about it. But my understanding was that, and admittedly I did read this part of the book quite quickly, my understanding of the 
of it was that actually they knew i mean the broken ambassadors were a failing of the human society i mean it's it's not that people have had this effect or that they know much about this effect because otherwise they could have you know i read it as actually the problem is i mean presumably back in the midst of time when embassy town is being set up there are problems and people get killed and all the rest of it right and eventually the the embassy town has come to live in that society as part of that society as part of that organism and then it's only when the kind of outside force of uh, Bremen try to exert more control, that is where the problem comes in. I mean, I, is, is, is that not the... I mean, it's also quite a common science fiction theme to have this kind of juxtaposition of pure technology and pure nature and then somewhere in the middle is the compromise, right? I mean, this is exactly what happens in System Shock and... I mean, I think, I think this really leads us nicely back to, to your initial comment. Um, I don't think this is about the nature-nurture divide. Um, how to say this? I think, as, as you know, what we developed now is basically there is this, this point in, in the story where everything goes wrong, basically. This new ambassador comes and things go completely haywire. And basically, the potential destruction of the whole society and the whole ecosystem of the hosts of the planet Arieka is um, is triggered, right? And I think the kind of the idea of preservation and saving comes in there, right? I mean, obviously there there's considerations of purity of language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think it's this point where this idea of we need to save them or we need to preserve something that they had that we apparently destroyed comes in. And I think the analogy, I mean, it's not a good analogy in a kind of well, let's see. I think the analogy that comes to mind at this point is the idea of an infectious disease that obviously the human settlers are immune to, but the hosts are wide open to and uh, are dying from it, basically. So I think that the idea of saving comes in there, which might mitigate the kind of problematic nature-nurture divide we've been talking about and the kind of, I don't know, colonialism or what was it, 19th century um, anthropology, early 20th century anthropology that we've mentioned, that, that we mentioned, right? So I'm not so sure, I'm not convinced. I think the moral argument still stands for me. It is quite interesting that the hosts don't learn language, right? And actually this is something that's quite different because, for instance, birds learn to sing, whales learn to sing. Mm. So and therefore, and copy noises they hear from human environments. Yeah. So birds will copy car alarms and. Yeah, yeah. So actually, while my I found myself having to stop myself from doing this because while my first reaction to the book when I'm reading it all the time when these descriptions come up is to think of them as animals, right? Because they're kind of pure and part of the world and all the rest of it. They're not because they're they're born. She says that they reach a certain point, their second stage or whatever. And they're born, they, they kind of come into language, mm -hmm. which, is so, which is something slightly different. Right? Um, I was listening to a thing a few weeks ago, actually, about some research where they found that there's almost kind of a, a hierarchy of songs for whales. And they didn't, they didn't know where whales, whales were coming back, you know, or coming around, and they were coming back every year with new songs, and they didn't know where they were learning them from. And it turned out that, you know, wherever the whales go when they migrate, they were picking them up and it was they, they have their own kind of cultural cultural thing in that regard. But um, 
it is it is a little bit strange that and it seemed a little bit clunky to me <laughs> i don't know that you know they just kind of came came out of the Ariakin or whatever come out of some kind of chrysalis or or something and all of a sudden they're just able to speak the world i think it's like a vat or something and they describe it as they, they they're sort of bubbling in this vat and then like they, the they gradually develop to, to being fully developed well this comes else. back to the point you mentioned before alex where the idea of the Ariakin language as being pure and holy is related to how we view baby babbling as god speech right so the reason they can speak it straight after birth is it's it's their immediate pure baby babble. They don't need anything else because their language functions. Mm-hmm. I think to come back to your point about freedom, I mean, I, I, I think if you're going to equate freedom with free will, then I think that that is something that couldn't be conceived in that in that way of thinking. I mean, it, it's a little bit strange because the the characters i mean we because the book's narrated by abyss right we see the world through her eyes and it's made well explicitly clear i mean she just states front and center a lot of the time that there's aspects of it which they kind of which the humans kind of understand but don't couldn't explain or you know they kind of have have learned through trial and error rather than through any kind of scientific exercise i mean it's quite clear that this is a, a long process i mean he's a decades well i think it's far longer than that in mm. terms of you know people screwing up and getting hurt and clashing and... i think the hosts certainly have free will because they 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 hire humans to act out things for them so they can be similes they want to have more freedom in the way that they speak I think it really comes out in, in one particular scene that's um, very prominent in the book. It's the Festival of Lies. So, as we've been saying, like the hosts, they can't lie. They can only speak what has happened or what is happening, right? They can't contradict the world through their language, which is one of the limitations we've been saying. So it comes down to this very interesting scene in the book, which is called the Festival of Lies where the hosts try, try to lie, right? And they're trying to get closer to them. They invite ambassadors who obviously can lie because the hosts, they have a very close relationship between the language and the world. So they can only speak what has happened or what is happening. They can't contradict the world with their words, right? Um, but in this festival of lies, I think related to that, there is a debate about the interpretation of some similes and how similes are acted out. So our main character, Avis, she, she is a simile. So she was made to act out a particular scene. And based on that, the hosts can actually speak about it. So she is the simile, which is called the girl who ate what was given to her in pain, more or less, right? And this then serves as an expression, as a new expression for the hosts. But at one particular point in the book, they have a debate whether or not this kind of enactment actually was the best one they could do and kind of that scene really indicates that they can think things that they can't speak so there's a kind of disconnect so they can think alternatives they can think of different similes but they can't say them unless they've been acted out and that's really interesting and that for me indicates that there is free will but it's presented i think multiple times in the book as kind of a a glimmer like the, the beginnings of something which could become something much more but in their existing state 
is um is, is not fully realized and it requires this sort of this catastrophic intervention in order to bring that forth and uh, the interesting thing about the whole theme uh, of um, ad addiction is that it is well for one thing it is the group who are most explicitly trying to cultivate this ability to lie that seem to be at least semi-resistant to for what the rest of their species is you know, completely irresistible yeah, it is interesting but how, how that I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is taken away as an idea as opposed to a kind of reference because the simile remains tied to the object, right? So the guy, there's one, there's another simile which is, um, or uh, so something is like the man who swims with fishes every week, right? And in the process of the book, the guy dies, so it that simile then becomes the man who swims with fishes every week and is now dead or now doesn't you know so you get these kind of it means that they can negate things right we are not like the man right or something but that's not a positive identification they can just say well this is the closest simile but it's not quite that um there are some pretty funny ones though the, the rock that was split and tied Back together, put back together again, which we encounter in the book long before we know why it's there. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just a landscape feature at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that while Avis isn't necessarily a hero and in many ways isn't really a main character, which I quite like about the book. Um, I mean, she's not the the hero at least. I mean, she's a character among others. She carries a lot of weight for how the story can function. Because yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Because it's first person, and because of how it's set, the book requires a protagonist who is both a native of Embassy Town and a simile, and someone who's travelled all over the galaxy and encountered other civilizations. And so she's at, she's incredibly central in having to feature all those things. Oh, and her husband is the linguist. He's Mister Exposition. <laughs> so she's performing four very key roles here, uh, and she moves between. Um from being outside this priestly cast of the ambassadors to being inside and outside again and that's an important actual plot device as yeah. well because at different points we see them as just being off in the distance doing something we're not exactly sure what sure. and at other times we see them actually doing their business. I, I think she is, is really good in the book actually because I think she represents a different kind of main actor or a different kind of hero because she's not in any obvious sense a superwoman anything special compared to other people apart from that she can drive spaceships but that's a different question so she's not like the superwoman at the same time there's another trend with like main characters and heroes which is where the hero is obviously somehow special but at the same time this being special is mitigated by the hero being like a tortured soul um, hurting themselves or being like a really really difficult character and this is well, she's different, but she's, it's, it's quite clear that she's the hero, but she doesn't fall in any of these, in, in this dichotomy. And I think it's a genius solution to kind of present a modern hero that doesn't fall into, into this trap, I think. I do quite like the description that she gives of herself as, I've been married, what, three or four times, and I seem to be quite good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, her 
I I she's a fictional character. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt on that one, right? Because her marriage. Her, ma- <laughs> well, no, because her marriages, as far as we can tell, come to an end because relationships can have natural ends, especially if you're spanning across the galaxy. Um, well, but but that's also interesting in the book because he has a very interesting conception of gender, of social relations underlying underlying the book. It's not very obvious, but I don't think it needs to be obvious at this point in, in science fiction. Um, but what he does, like, in, in kind of in half sentences every here, here and there, you kind of see that there's a different social fabric, that kids are brought up in a different way. But most importantly, with regard to the marriage thing, there are different kinds of marriages. So marriages do not only involve two people, they can be homosexual, heterosexual, between a bigger number of people, there can be all kinds of things. There's this great fluidity. But he doesn't, he doesn't make it an obvious or central point, but it's there. And I think, I think that's really great, actually. Well, I think that's true to an extent, but I mean, in the sense that he's described it, right? I mean, I think that's important. I think in the society itself, though, I mean, there's quite clearly a kind of particular way in which it plays out, right? I mean, homosexual relationships are still, even though kids are brought up by more than one person or whatever, she, I think, are they called shift parents and yeah. things like that? They're quite similar to Le Guin in that respect. Um, but homosexual relationships are still looked down on unless you're someone of sufficient status that it can be kind of overlooked. Um, and obviously the ambassadors, by definition, are, if, if, if they fall in love with each other or whatever I mean they're clones effectively yeah, they're, they're, they're identical twins and clones who are also telepathically linked so yeah um, I mean in that case it's kind of looked over as a special case but I, I, I think there's still in the, in the actual society regardless of Mievel's imagination in writing that stuff there's still definitely kind of power dynamics in fact the entire second half of the book is about those dynamics I think but, but I think it has to do with the fact that Embassy Town is um, an outpost right at the very end of that kind of universe. So we learn that the, the, the rest of the universe, especially like the, the main, how do, how do you say that? The, the colon? No, not the colony. Um, Bremen, how do you say, what, what is Bremen? Oh, the, it's an empire. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, Embassy Town is at the very end of, of that kind of universe, that it's more conservative, that you have these kind of power dynamics more in play, perhaps, I, would, I think. Um, and we learned that in other parts of the universe, for example, uh, Bremen, um, the center of the empire of which Embassy Town is, is an outpost, uh, things are much more fluid. So I think this kind of slight conservatism, conservatism for example, where um, homosexuality is frowned upon, I think that it has more to do with Embassy being a little bit backwards, you know, like in the outback kind of thing. So I think the, the gender, the... Um, Blah, blah, blah. They, 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 cer- they certainly comment that Embassy Town is difficult to get to in terms of spaceship shipping lanes. And as a result, it's it's a bit behind the times, right? It doesn't get the latest news and technology and ideas from the Bremen. And clearly the Bremenies, the Bremens, think that as a result they are the sort of they're, they're sort of they're a country backwater, but too valuable to be ignored. Uh, and the empty towns are almost kind of proud of this, mm. although of course they have access to all sorts of organic technology that Bremen doesn't. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, Avis plays quite a role in this uh, purely from the point of view of perspective, right? So, I mean, we do get to see that classic science fiction, slightly alienated perspective. Also, a character which 
conveniently has been away long enough that random people she's talking to are going to explain stuff to her, which allows us as the reader to then become slightly more familiar, right? I mean, that's the that's the classic video game trick. You either make your character an outsider or you make them amnesiac, right? So everyone can explain stuff to you. Um, but I mean, she also brings to bear some kind of standards, right? Or some kind of slightly more awareness of other things. I mean, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the player of games where exactly this thing happens, right? You have someone that's kind of seen more than the main place where the novel is set. And that kind of brings to light some of those hypocrisies or double standards or kind of weird idiosyncrasies that make the place ultimately more believable, I think. I mean, in, in in terms of the the space thing, I mean, obviously it's, it's quite a major thing that it is, they measure everything in time, right? So, yeah. you know, it is a long way away from everywhere else, right? I mean, it's kind of made out to be this frontier thing. So even though it probably thinks of itself as fairly cosmopolitan in many regards, um, Embassy Town's still very much a frontier town. I love his descriptions of space, though, because he uses the German, right? He uses the... There's space is called the Emma, which is the always, right? Is manchmal sometimes? Manchmal sometimes. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you have that quite nice dimensional wibbly wobbly timey wimey aspect. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean that's the occasion where Mievel invents a new type of space travel, which is well, it's not really described what it is, but basically there's this fabric of space which is called the Emma on which um, subspace ships travel which kind of connects places in, in a different way. And then there's the Manchmal, which is kind of our reality, I would describe it. And it's, it's really interesting because the Immer and the way you travel on the Immer is, is a bit like old school sailing, you know, yeah. it's kind of dangerous. You kind of, um, there are currents and there are areas which are more dangerous. And apparently like the area around um, Arieka, the planet where Embassy Town is, is, is more dangerous to get to. And I mean, funnily enough, this these ideas are really connected to our main um, character because Avis is what is called an immerser, which is a, a brilliant play on words, I think. Um, and, and in that regard, she is special because she has this ability to um, drive subspace ships, which is it, quite amazing. It's interesting that many of our sci-fis, although our, technolo although our technology and our experience of how to get to space has evolved from our air forces, most sci-fis use the language of navies. <laughs> to describe space. Sure. The, the ranks are naval ranks. Mayville talks about there being lighthouses. Um, there are certain people in the novel who get, well, seasick whenever they go faster than light travel. And I wonder if we acquire that, um, that language of sailing, not because it's relevant to what it is we're doing in our ships, but because it brings with it a language of exploration. Oh, I, I definitely think so. Yeah, I mean, I think... It is also the point at which Mievel kind of lays out what he's trying to do. I mean, I know I know we started this with a discussion about some of the ambiguities or contradictions in the way the world works and language works and everything. But at the beginning of the book, you have this kind of weird cosmic space manifestation that sounds like one of the chaos gods from Warhammer or something that kind of just appears and is shot down and all the rest of it, right? I mean, at that point, you're not in a world where 
the fact that speakers don't make the right sounds or you know can't can't communicate through speakers is is kind of a I mean it's a little bit of a fantastical element which aesthetically is quite pleasing I mean obviously with the Ariakine society and stuff it's all basically organs and all the rest of it you know so you, you do have that kind of aspect as far as some of the more kind of rigid systemic books that we've read on the show though it probably doesn't quite pass muster right I mean he's clearly placing a point at which he's not going to bother systematizing any further he's in to, a way to that, use his own word he's floking right <laughs> yeah I mean you know, is it a cop out I mean it's strictly speaking in terms of world building it probably is but he's not trying to do what Le Guin does right in in uh that book that we did that she wrote. Dispossessed. I think Le Guin, right? Le, Guin, no, Le Guin hand waves as much as anyone else. And Mieville and Le Guin do better world building than many other books, but it's impossible to build a science fiction universe without some hand waving. It just looks unusual to us because language is the thing almost all sci-fi is hand wave. Oh, everyone speaks the same language. Or we have a translation crystal. Or they all speak common. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, I mean, but there, there's definitely... A, 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 slide, a sliding scale or a, a spectrum or, or whatever I mean between Le Guin who thinks about things in quite explicitly a social scientific way right and she's obviously read a lot of anthropology and all the rest of it and admittedly to mention an author we haven't discussed on the show yet but Neil Gaiman who just kind of makes up stuff as it comes into his head or Terry Pratchett right, who we couldn't do a show on because we all like too much right so I think it depends. I mean, people get wound up about different things, right? People want feasible ideas of what FTL is or Faster Than Light Travel is in in their books. You know, if they're that way inclined, at, at, at some point you kind of just wave it away, right? Um, but I, I I think nonetheless, Avis is important in that regard because she's travelled and and all the rest of it. I mean, she is part of. She is what we imagine ourselves in the book, right? If we imagined ourselves, we wouldn't imagine ourselves as an embassy of, as a resident of Embassy Town, sorry. We would imagine ourselves as a space tourist, right? And that's what Avis is. Um, yeah, it's kind of amazing how incidental all this stuff is. You, you, at the start of the book, he builds this uh, quite fantastic cosmology or like universe, and then that almost just creates a, a point of contrast within the way the actual book ends up working rather than constituting a key aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, there's some quite nice details that drop in. There's a lot of smoking Chekhov's guns, right? I mean, it's. I, I think it's a novel that's been written backwards <laughs> in the sense that he's got this kind of thing that he wants to talk about and he's written it backwards, putting in plot details as they kind of sufficiently well, see, distant for them to seem reasonable so, so for the first two thirds of the book there are two intermeshing plot lines one that has already happened and one that is happening and I, I, I quite enjoyed that I, I, I liked the book the book had no real start at the beginning go on until you reach the end and then stop structure uh, in fact I actually felt the book was at its weakest when it got rid of that non-linear structure oh definitely I mean I think as someone that's interested in this book on a kind of intellectual level right as someone that's interested in those ideas and, and, and is familiar with the things Mievel's bringing up I think I preferred the beginning of the book to the end I didn't uh, the end I don't know I mean having read The City and the City as well I mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise my usual objection that like 
I'd rather people just didn't bother with plots anymore. Like he, he could just write this, write this world like some kind of source book for an RPG or something, and I'd be perfectly happy. It, it, it's weird. Um, the, the book ends ambivalently, literally, right? So Abbas turns to Spanish dancer, one of the hosts, and says, "What do you think about all the stuff that's happened?" And the host replies simultaneously, "Good and bad." Yeah, yeah. and it seems seems. That's not just in character. That fears seems to be the okay. We've learnt all these out of character lessons about language and interactions with other species. What do we think about it? And we are slightly unsettled and ambivalent about it. I mean, so we we focus a lot on the language and things. But I mean, let's let's talk a bit about the second part of the book, which is class war, alien edition, or, or something. I mean, so basically, at this point. At the point where the hosts become quite obviously drugged by the way that this ambassador is speaking, they become addicted to it, they're unable to withdraw. Um, there's an element of, or a, a very definite aspect of, of, of kind of class rebellion in the way that it then plays out, because some of the Ariakim then try to fight back against that. Um, and it becomes very clear that rather than being hosts, and rather than being the kind of the the humans being able to rest in the warm bosom of the Ariakim, they have become the kind of dominant dominant force. Right. Um, what what did you think about that aspect of the book? I mean, it's it, it it's quite an interesting reversal, but at the same time, I found that this kind of drug plotline wasn't necessarily the most interesting way mm -hmm. that could have been followed up. Does that make sense? I mean, I I, I, I thought it was quite unsubtle yeah. by the way they're really addicted to the way you speak. Yeah, well I I guess it, it all depends. I, I, I have to say that I don't have anything against plots <laughs> to quite such a degree <laughs> but in order Alex to... hate them. <laughs> <laughs> In order to affect this quite radical inversion in terms of the distribution of power between these two species, um, there had to be some fairly radical device for doing that, and I guess it, it, addiction is one way of doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can see what you mean. It's like it's it's definitely not subtle in terms of how it works, and you you would tend to think, okay, if there was this utterly radical Achilles heel to the this species, you know, mode of existence would they not have something have happened in their entire evolutionary history to have you know triggered this before um yeah it, you, you, it, those are the sort of questions you're just not supposed to ask i think it's very it? nick bostrom type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah just based on the sheer probability like mm. yeah but it does allow a kind of well a revolutionary upheaval born through huge amounts of alien kind of insectile blood um, but ultimately it is a, a very much a political revolution that occurs actually on both sides the, the humans and the and the hosts uh, and I was saying or Matt was saying previously about um, how the embassy towners did actually have some cognizance of what potentially could happen but it was only it was precisely the elites that kept this under wraps and covered up. So we only really discover the extent to which uh, the humans 
had this prior knowledge later in the book when we actually get to see some of the inner workings of this uh, social structure which is based upon this sort of priestly caste who are able to mediate between uh, the civilization on which they all depend and therefore have all the power and the, the latter part of the book is essentially working out how uh, a certain certain elements of that caste try to hold on to um, their power while at the same time it's uh, it's all kind of falling falling apart around them it's a good summary of the, <laughs> <laughs> of the second part of the book I mean it's, it's interesting that he doesn't go in I mean it's not quite as crude as maybe I made it out to be in, in the sense that there's more than one group of Ariakin right yeah in this sense and then it turns out they're both kind of doing the same thing they're learning to speak right in, in, in the sense that we think about it um and so you end up actually, for the new society, you end up with these two forms of language, one of which is governed entirely by gestures, because one group of the Ariakin rebel against their addiction by deafening themselves, right? Their getting high and becoming addicted is caused by hearing um, the, the god drug or one of the ambassadors speak, and so they quite brutally actually um, mutilate themselves in order to avoid it and then eventually they kind of learn that through gesture they can actually communicate rather than going on a kind of charging rampage the other group rebel by learning to speak like humans do I mean the, the, there's quite obvious parallels in kind of various Marxist understandings of what the proletarian rebellion looks like, right? I mean, you've got the kind of unscientific, passionate, utopian uh, rebellions during the 1848 revolutions and, and, and whatever else. And then you've got the more kind of scientific um, and thereby more stable revolution, which is kind of inducted by these Ariakim that learn to talk like humans, which I don't think there's any subtlety in Avis calling that group of Ariakim the professors, right? I mean, they're quite obviously more technical about the way that they do things. These are the people that are champions in the Festival of Lies and are able to trick themselves into lying. Um, in terms of the ending, though, I mean, it's not, it's quite a, it's not a particularly revolutionary ending, is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm confused by that, actually, because, basically because of what you just said. Um, at the end of the book, the change comes from Avis leading a group of um, ambassadors and other people uh, to the hosts, and she literally says, whether or not we manage to save the situation, save the planet, save ourselves, save the Ariakai, depends on them being able to learn what we, what we are going to teach them, which is basically the ability to lie, to abstract, to separate world and language. And that point is quite interesting because it is the humans, it is Avis teaching them something that then helps them to fully liberate. And that might be, uh, that's an interesting element. I'm not sure how I feel about it because it doesn't come from themselves, it comes from, from the hosts themselves. It comes from them being propelled or being taught, right? Yeah, I mean, I think It, it could either be really patronizing or it could not, right? I mean, That's it, the point, it, right? I don't know which to, one. Depending on which way you want to look at it. I mean, I mean, there is an element to which, at least when, when I was reading it and the mood I was in, 
a particular kind of Marxist philosophy mood. Um, you know, I mean, it did seem a little bit strange in terms of it paralleled kind of Victorian moral reformism, the kind of thing that Ian Hislop makes documentaries about, right? So you have these kind of figures, these these well-meaning figures like Magda, who it turns out was planning to rebel all along and so and so on, who are kind of holding out the gift of a better life, a morally reformed life, um, in precisely the same way that some of those figures would, right? Like um, Cadbury and Sainsbury when they're setting up housing for their workers and all this kind of thing. Um, I mean, the other way to look at it, of course, is that if you're going to go full on Marxist philosophy of history, there's aspects of truth in the kind of uh, bourgeois way of living, right? So it's it's only by going through that kind of bourgeois phase that actually freedom comes about. So, you know, for instance, Edwin and Hawkeye would make a big deal out of the development of science as simultaneously the tool of oppression, but also the point at which freedom could come about, right? And I think... It, you could read either one into. I mean, I, I think reading the book more socially, it does seem to come up with this kind of patronising Victorian moral attitude a little bit. And not to say whether that's good or bad, but it's it, it's got parallels there. Reading the book philosophically, you end up with a, a fairly more kind of systematically ambiguous message. Anyone want to follow my rant on Marxist philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> So, so, I mean, exactly on that note, I was wondering, the book ends with this tremendous learning experience for the Oyeka, right? Their whole world changes, their language changes, their conceptual, conceptual system changes. So it's this massive change and there is hints at a brighter future now because they were able to separate world and world, right? Um, but I'm wondering, is the same kind of change parallel, paralleled on, 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 the, on the side of the embassy towners, right? The whole scope of this whole change and this process of learning something new. But if it's only them who have to change and adapt and learn how to, well, properly speak, what about the other side? And if it's this imbalance, then there might be a problem there. Well, I, I don't know if it, it's not exactly mirrored, but there is certainly, well, in, in the literal sense of the word apocalypse, um, an unveiling there's an unveiling of the fact that this uh, social structure they had prior to the events of the book um, rested upon uh, this class of the ambassadors and staff who are sort of the administrators of this arrangement. Um, that They have a privileged position due to their being a uniquely able to negotiate with the hosts. Now, if the hosts are able to talk to human beings and in seemingly in almost no time at all pick up human speech due to some sort of incredible intelligence that they had in them then that completely changes the way that that society can move forwards even quite apart from the fact that there's been massive devastation and huge people numbers of people have died it's difficult to see how that could ever go back and in many ways the the ambassadors are there now sort of uh, in a much more functional and um, in a way that's almost subservient to the survival of the whole community mm. whereas before they had you know a very explicitly aristocratic or at least 
during the course of the book, it becomes revealed to be an explicitly aristocratic relationship with, uh, you know, with their fellow human beings. I really like that point. So basically, literally, the whole world was transformed through learning new ways of speaking and communicating. Mm. Probably not a bad place That's to finish. Place. <laughs> <laughs> we're all off to a disused restaurant, but we're going to act out in this. <laughs> the man who ate a beer, drank a beer, ate a beer. Um, that would be painful. Yeah, uh, we'll it. see you all next month. Uh, next month we're doing uh, Utopia by Thomas More. Thank you for listening. Right, bye. It's all right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was, I'll do that.